Hello and welcome again to Just Plain Sense, the Equality and Diversity Podcast. Welcome again, I'm Christine Burns. March the 24th, 2009 has been declared Ada Lovelace Day, after the woman who has every right to be recognised as the world's first computer programmer. We covered the background to this initiative a couple of episodes ago when I spoke to the organiser, Sue Sharman Anderson. It's a day when people around the world have signed up to a pledge to write or speak about a woman technologist who has inspired them. Role models are considered to be vitally important in helping greater numbers of women strive for fulfilling careers in all areas of technology, and this podcast is my contribution. Much of the technology we take for granted today is only possible because of the ability to design and prototype computer chips quickly and cheaply. At the beginning of the 1970s, the process was far from easy. It took time, it was prone to errors, and custom chip design was just not economical for many kinds of product. My guest, on the line now from Ann Arbor in Michigan, literally wrote the book that gave engineers a methodology and so helped to fuel the microelectronics revolution. Lynn Conway is nowadays Professor of Electrical Engineering and Computer Science Emerita at the University of Michigan. She's a member of the U.S. National Academy of Engineering, the highest professional honor an engineer can achieve. She worked for many years at the historic Xerox Palo Alto Research Center in California, the birthplace of most of the ideas and technologies which shape our use of computers today. Windows, icons, pull-down menus, the computer mouse... And she's here via Skype to talk to me now. Lynn, welcome to Just Plain Sense. Hi, Christine. It's great to be here with you today. Could we start, perhaps, from the most pertinent question of all for Ada Lovelace Day? What led you into pursuing a career in technology? Well, it's interesting. I was reflecting on on this, and uh, turns out my dad was an engineer. My mom uh, was a school teacher, and... Uh, from very early in life, they inspired my interest in uh, in science, and sometimes in um, in subtle ways. You know, I remember uh, from very early in life, uh, a very vivid memory. Uh, I was very frightened by thunder and lightning, and one day my dad showed me how to watch for the lightning. We stood by the front door and pulled it open. We watched for the lightning and counted the seconds as the distant sound rushed towards us, and it was so cool to figure out how far it come from, even though we didn't see it coming. And and it, that was a really powerful lesson for me in, in science and math at, at the age of uh, about five or so. Um, it's it's I, funny, actually, I, you, know, you just reminded me that when I was little, uh, if the if there was lightning, my mum used to come and pull the curtains and, and, and cover up the mirrors. <laughs> Ah, right, right. Very interesting. So I had a, I had a different exposure to uh, <laughs> to nature and science that way. But I made it through uh, the same. You know, what really got me interested in science, though, was a trip we took to the planetarium at the uh, Natural History Museum in, in New York City when I was about 10. And, and I, I was thrilled to, to, to realize how much people knew about the planets and the stars. And and I wondered how they'd figured it all out. So I began reading a lot about that. And um, 
by uh, my junior high school years was uh, very much into uh, building some telescopes and observing the stars with my friends from my science class. Well, you know, that's very pertinent for you to mention that because the time I was talking about in my introduction, you know, during the 1970s, I mean, we're talking about a period that wasn't long after the first moon landing. Uh, and it seems to me that a time when, well, suddenly just about anything felt possible. Do you think you can paint a picture of what it was like to be at the centre of things in the U.S. in those days? Uh, yes, it was really special time for engineers here by then. Uh, huge advances in uh, basic knowledge had been made during World War II and the early post-war years. And certainly by the early 70s, the atmosphere in engineering colleges, corporate R&D labs was really electrical excitement. You know, not just over the possibilities for new products, but for whole new industries. I had been very fortunate to uh, um, uh, go to uh, a school at MIT first and then uh, Columbia University for graduate work where uh, they had a really outstanding early curriculum in computer science. This was in the, uh, the early 60s. And it covered everything from computer architecture to logic design to advanced programming. So I get on the ground floor of computing there and was able to ride that wave ever since, starting out on uh, a research project at IBM in 64. But by the early 70s, all of this had escalated dramatically, and there were just tr clearly tremendous opportunities everywhere. How common was it for women to be working as technologists in those days? Well, by the uh, by, around I would say by certainly by the early '70s, the demand for talented engineers and programmers had become so great that um, that a lot of high tech companies began closely looking at any and all candidates, independent of gender and so forth. And and many women who had math or science backgrounds, uh, who had been working in support type roles in industry, began shifting into the into the professional engineering and programming ranks and. Uh, I benefited very greatly from this uh, this trend. Um, by building on my early work at IBM, I was able to advance into a, 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 a really senior position as a computer architect at Memworks Corporation um, in 1971. So I was very fortunate to kind of get into computing at the right time and then kind of hit, hit my stride in my career at a time women were really um, being openly welcomed into uh, the engineering ranks. Now, you just reminded me, actually, because it was 1972 that I started my computer science course in, uh, in Manchester. But just coming back to you, you joined Xerox Palo Alto Research Center then in, in 1973, and that was still in California. So, first of all, what was so special about that place as an institution? Uh, Xerox uh, Palo Alto Research Center, or PARC, P-A-R-C, PARC, as it became known now, it was a pretty amazing place. Uh, the company, uh, which is based in Stanford, Connecticut, set the lab up in uh, Silicon Valley, right next door to Stanford University and the many um, electronic semiconductor companies out there, um, with the with the goal of of exploiting digital electronics in their copier business. And it was pretty um, pretty wide open mission, and it became really a mission and a mission uh, to develop. Uh, what became known as the personal computer. The the idea was to create a new type of personal computer, mostly using offices at the time, that people could use to rapidly create and file and share and print documents. Uh, Xerox saw that as a way of really boosting their copier business. Um, and so that that's where the personal computer was born, really, from the display, keyboard, mouse, to Windows user interfaces, to Ethernet, laser printer, and connecting um, 
via the inter- internet. It was oh. just a totally amazing uh, place and it, with an amazing mission. It, I've seen bits of it on the television and it seemed quite out of this world. It's so, it must have been so exciting to be there. What was your role there? Well, I I I was uh, I joined and my first assignment there was a design of a, of a complex digital system for optical character recognition. Um, um, unfortunately, that proved economical, and so I began exploring ways to use the new personal computers being developed there as tools for designing silicon chips. So this for, is fortunate. This- yeah. Go on, I was going to say, this is playing very much to the sort of strengths that you'd had in IBM in, in, in very complex logic design, and this was taking it a step further? Yes, and, and, and also a step in the direction of um, a really uh, figuring out improved ways for exploiting computers and helping in, as tools in the design of, of electronics circuitry. Uh, now, in the 1970s, I remember from my, my computer science uh, teaching that uh, uh, in those days, very large-scale integrated circuits, or what we called VLSI, were only just starting, people were only just starting to talk about those. What, what made that technology different to anything that had come along before? Well, by the uh, late 60s or so, most uh, circuit designers and engineers uh, used integrated circuits of a type that contained perhaps a few score transistors. In the early 70s, a new type of transistor, the field effect transistor, enabled fabrication of what became known as large-scale integrated chips that contained, oh, say, a thousand or more transistors. And uh, engineers at Intel kind of stunned the world uh, when they used this technology to create the first microprocessor, as it was called, a little simple four-bit computer processor on a, on a single chip. Um, it was a really huge effort to design uh, such a chip uh, because it involved not just computer architects, lot designers, but all kinds of specialists in circuit design, and then layout designers who hand-drew the complex photographic mass that, that were used to print the patterns of the transistors and wiring on silicon chips. So except for very few small groups of people and just a few large semiconductor companies, um, a few other engineers knew how, how these microprocessors were being designed. It was just all a big mystery. And, uh, and even if you could, could figure out how such things were designed, um, only um, engineers working in those semiconductor com- companies could, could get access to getting them fabricated. So it was kind of as if... Um, a, a few scribes in 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 some monastery somewhere had, had knew how to how to somehow uh, create uh, uh, writing in, in for for printing in this new kind of uh, printing process. So but no I, one else had access to it. If, if I'm going to go sort of go back on that, then if so, in those days, if you wanted to design a, a new product, say with 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 electronics inside it. If you were an ordinary designer, you probably would use these smaller, com- less complex chips and have a lot of them on quite a large circuit board. Because, That's exactly right. And, and therefore, you could never get your costs down because uh, of the cost of manufacturing a board like that. Exactly. And, and, uh, and yet the technology was opening up to put vast amounts of, of digital circuitry on single chips. However... Uh, it, it appeared that the design of such chips was so incredibly expensive that only a few commodity products, such as microprocessors, would ever be designed that way. 
uh, and so that that set the stage for for the work that um, that I and my colleague uh, Professor Carver Mead at Caltech did. So we, we've defined the problem. So how did you set out to solve it? Well, one of the uh, one of one of the things that motivated the work was that um, that Mead had calculated from really basic physical principles that it would eventually be possible to fabricate what we call very large scale integrated chips that actually contain millions of transistors before any kind of fundamental fundamental physical limits uh, were reached. And and it also was clear that the fabrication processes. Um, uh, could rapidly achieve finer and finer resolutions uh, each year that went by. And as we began to grasp all that, uh, really a huge world of possibilities loomed. It, 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 if only it were possible to much more quickly and easily design digital systems and the technology. So, so, so when, when, when we set out to crack this problem, um, what we realized a lot of time was being wasted by large teams of people over-optimizing many levels of design when they uh, were designing the current microprocessors. It was really as though you had too many cooks in the kitchen trying to design one meal. And, and, um, and so we set out to simplify that in every conceivable way possible without, but without constraining the kinds of digital systems people could design. And, um, and um, I, I came up with a, a set of scalable design rules that were very simple to apply in computerized tools. And that uh, took another step, which helped us enable uh, any chip layouts that were created to be easily scaled to any particular fabrication process so that as densities increased, you could still reuse your earlier designs. So, so were these like sort of building blocks, standard, th- standard uh, design pieces? To, to some extent. And, and large libraries of, of fragments of designs could be widely shared and so forth. Um, but anyway, we, um, we, in a really big push in uh, 1977, we were able to formulate a very basic set of design principles that enabled engineers to really easily learn how to design VLSI chips from top to bottom. Uh, especially if they use new, simple, computerized tools that our teams were developing. And we began testing these methods on all our colleagues. We had a number of academic colleagues and their students uh, trying these out and seeing to work. So we began writing a book about it all. And uh, by the summer of 78, uh, we had a draft of the book, and I went off to MIT that fall and taught a course that uh, would later become ubiquitous. It was a one-semester course in VLSI design for senior and graduate level uh, students of electrical engineering and computer science. And um, the centerpiece of the course was that students actually had a chance to design their own chips. And we had uh, innovated some ways to enable them to be very quickly prototyped uh, so the students could test their designs. And by doing that, uh, that helped us validate our design methods, the textbook, the course, tools, and the infrastructure for rapid prototyping. So uh, things really ramped up pretty quick after that. The following year, about a dozen universities ran similar courses, and we provided them with a lot of information and files over the ARPANET. And uh, we scaled up our prototyping service to fabricate all their student projects. And 
this was a huge happening. It was spectacularly successful, and a number of design projects actually led to major Silicon Valley startups. Uh, Jim Clark's uh, Silicon Graphics Company started uh, right from a design he put on on, on as a prototype on uh, on that run. And of course, then it wasn't long before the texts and courses were adopted in universities uh, all around the world, and the uh, Silicon Gold Rush was on. So this was literally a case that students who were actually trying out your methodology were, were producing designs which they could then uh, turn into, into commercial reality almost straight away? Exactly, exactly. And, and it was becoming very clear to a lot of smart people out there that, uh, wow, they could take their knowledge of digital design, they could use these new tools to design their own chips. They could do it quickly. It wasn't complicated. And, and, and there were new ways to quickly prototype your designs um, and, and then get them fabricated in, in regular uh, fabrication processes. So it kind of opened up a, a world of new uh, applications that were enabled by, by the very inexpensive um, production of, of, of of, of very uh, dense uh, 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 chips that contain many, many transistors. So, so we're talking about, say, what is it, about 1977, about 32 years ago? Uh, yes, actually, it was it, the, the, the real event that finally kicked it off was in 1979, the, the, the use of the book and the cor- courses in uh, about a dozen universities. That was 79. So, so that's the 30th that anniversary. The, it's the 30th anniversary of that. Mm-hmm. What? That would be uh, this coming fall. Oh, my goodness. So it's a good time to ask, really, if you look around the world today, then, how, how different do you think the world would be if, if we, we hadn't had that design method from you and, and Carver Mead? You know, it's, it's really hard to say. It's, it's, uh, you, know, it's, you, you never really know how history would have run otherwise. But I think, in a way, without the sudden impact of that work all around the world, a kind of common culture... Of design more and 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 how to do this stuff. Uh, it, it seems likely that chip design would have remained far longer in the hands of just a few large semiconductor manufacturers. So I think that would have delayed the innovation of the thousands of chips needed for the countless applications that we see out there today. Um, and, and essentially, I, I, I'm really glad it turned out the way it did, and not just because it sold a lot of books and all this sort of thing, but. <laughs> But um, but I, I now get to exploit all this wonderful new technology, too, and sooner than I otherwise would have. <laughs> so since that period, you've gone on to take many more important roles in other institutions, and you've, you've been honored extensively. What's been the best part of your career from your point of view? Was it that time, or was it the stuff you've done subsequently? Well, I, you know, I've had really uh, many rewarding times in my career, and certainly... Um, in years since then, um, just a lot of exciting times. Uh, but, but the VLSI days were really my greatest adventure. It was a tremendously intense time for everyone involved. Um, you know, you have to reflect back. We were living in a in a futuristic world at Park that's much mm-hmm. like the one we know now. But it was only there in that one place. And and with those new personal computers, uh, we had powers to in, interact and collaborate in unprecedented ways. And that that was really what enabled us to create the book and the courses and this stuff all around on the internet. It was like we were out there adventuring in ways that people, most people couldn't realize. But because of that, we could visualize the impact our VLSI work might have. 
So this is tremendously motivating because we could see the impact it would have on human culture as VLSI technology made personal computers even more powerful and way less expensive so that almost everyone could have one. So, so it was quite a rush. You know, we were living in a future world and had a sense we were going to create that and spread it around. I was, I was, it, it, I was, it came true. I was going to say, I mean, it's, it's coming across your, your enthusiasm. What's the biggest thrill about what you do as an, about being an engineer? Well, I, I, I've always most enjoyed working on really adventurous, high-risk projects. I think it's kind of the entrepreneurial spirit. And in my case, not so much for business and money, but for, for creating knowledge and, and seeing it move around out there. Um, and I've always especially in, enjoyed working on teams of talented people who are pushing their personal limits. Um, and are, are those there, opportunities don't come often, but when they do, they're just dynamite experiences. And are there any downsides? Well, you know, I, I reflect back, you know, I was very shy as a child and tended to withdraw into my studies and my special projects and, and so forth. And, I, I, and, and so in a way, I missed out on a lot when I was young. Uh, on the other hand, uh, because of those obsessions, I ended up having some amazing adventures in life and, and had a chance to work with a lot of incredibly talented people. And, um, and so I count myself as, as really lucky. Um, and although it took a, took a while, I eventually found my soulmate, too. Um, my husband, Charlie, and I have been together for 22 years now, and naturally he's an engineer. I was going to say he's an engineer, too. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Do you have engineering arguments? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, we try to stay away from that. <laughs> <laughs> so lastly, uh, thinking back on the last 40 years or so of your career, what kind of advice would you give to young girls you know, thinking about getting involved with technology today? And it doesn't matter what kind of technology it is. So yours yes, is, I, I know. Um, yeah, well, you know, I reflected on that, and, and it's, it's so clear that many young girls enjoy uh, creative work of design and making things. I mean, it's just, all you have to do is open your eyes and you see that. And, and many really have the native abilities to become great engineers because creativity and, and being able to see things in new ways is really what it's mostly about. Um, sadly, very few young girls are ever told or realize that engineers are the people who get to have all the fun of designing things like automobiles, computers, cell phones, software, airplanes, highways. Um, medical care uh, technology, and things for the home. And I don't know, if, if more girls simply knew about this, I think more would want to become engineers. And, um, you know, in the end, there's nothing quite like seeing your creative work out there, uh, out in the real world, helping many people along in their everyday lives. Um, it's just tremendously rewarding kind of work. Well, I've been speaking to one of my personal heroines and a great role model, Professor Lynn Conway, if you'd like to learn more about Lynn's distinguished career as an engineer, then she's got a very detailed website documenting all aspects of her work. What's the address, Lynn? The website is, is uh, www.lynnconway.com. And I'll also put some more specific pointers to your work on the Just Plain Sense website, too. But that brings me now to the end of another episode of Just Plain Sense. If you liked it, then you'll find all the rest on the website at podcast.plain-sense.co.uk. Alternatively, if you have Apple's iTunes, then just go to the store and search for Just Plain Sense by name. All podcasts are free, of course. So a very special thank you to my guest, Lynn Conway, 
And for me, it's goodbye and thank you for listening. Just Plain Sense is a Plain Sense Limited production. Mm-hmm.